0: Joshua chapter twenty two now as I was reading this, you know some of us in here have been around long enough to have experienced uh, warfare have to you know there's a few of us in this room that were in that uh, age in which we were still drafting people into the military uh, there was it was not a voluntary army but it was actually a draft driven army when I was uh, eighteen years old and I remember. The day that President Nixon announced an end to the Vietnam War, that the war was over, we were withdrawing all of our troops, and I was overjoyed because my draft number that year was six, uh, which meant I was going to the United States Army and to the front lines, uh, which would would have meant the jungles of Vietnam. And so, yeah, Rick and I were right there in the same, we were like dead, D-E-A-D, (laughs) dead front lines. And of course the last year was, you know, just brutal, a Tet offensive prior to that, just lots of things going on. But I remember, you know, just thinking about my friends that were already there that were coming home. And how it had been uh, very, very difficult, especially the last couple of years. The whole war was not good, but the last couple of years it just seemed like there was almost no purpose to it. It was like in specifically then men because women were not allowed in the battlefield at that day and time. Uh, But it was specifically young men, 18 to about 21 years of age, that were being killed. And you saw it in the paper every day. It was before Internet. I know it's hard to imagine, uh, but you didn't get your news in 2.7 nanoseconds. You actually had to wait for somebody to report it, and it came on the evening news, and there was always kind of an update or a report. And I remember uh, listening to one of those reports, and I had a really dear friend. I played basketball with my senior year of high school, and, uh, he, he had volunteered because he believed in America. And he was immediately taken in as a tremendous athlete. He was actually trained as a Green Beret. Uh, his second day in Vietnam, he was shot through the forehead and killed. And I remember talking to his mom, Mrs. Alvarado, and I, I you know, what do you say when you're 18 years old, 17, 18 years old to someone who's lost their child. And and I remember just thinking to myself, wouldn't it be great if everybody came home and the war was over? And it wasn't very long after that that that's exactly what happened. I was in a 1H holding classification until I was 35 years old, waiting for the next war to start. And fortunately, I made it to 35, and we didn't have a war, so I didn't get the privilege of serving my country. I would have gone for sure if it had come up, but... That's the picture that we have here now in the book of Joshua. And we need to look at it this way as the body of Christ. We do not battle. We don't war against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, the rulers of darkness of this age, heavenly hosts of wickedness in high places. There are demonic forces at work in our world. And there's a real war going on. But in Christ, We enter in to his rest. We enter into his peace. There is a purpose for the fighting. Sometimes we look at war, especially with what's been going on even in our country, these horrible things, these riots, and, and I'm not here to take a side or to pronounce judgment on anyone, but war is awful. It's horrible. It's never good. Fighting is not good. But it would be even worse if there were no purpose to it. And fortunately, we can say for the most part in our nation and our history that all of our wars have been fought, generally speaking, with some purpose behind them. But when you come home, you're supposed to come home and rest. And that's really the story here in this 22nd chapter. The battle's over. The victorious soldiers are going to be sent home. And they're now going to go and and rest. They're, they're going to receive an honorable discharge, if you will, uh, in the Lord. And so the first thing we see uh, is the Lord working through Joshua to discharge the soldiers. There's an old Italian proverb, and it says that the blood of a soldier is what makes a general great. And in this particular battle, it was... Joshua, I think, who made an awful lot of the soldiers great. But the fact of the matter is, is that for any war to be waged effectively, everybody has to be doing what they've been called to do. And in this case, they had been called by the Lord. In this case, the real commander-in-chief was God himself. And so the first thing we see is that General Joshua uh, commends the the battle troops as he sends them home. And the first group that he's going to minister to are those that had been away the longest from their homeland. Remember all of the remaining troops, other than those, the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, all inherited land where they were currently at on the western side of the Jordan. Those two-and-a-half tribes actually were from modern-day Jordan. And so they've been away from home for a long time. Uh, in excess of seven years. A- and they weren't, it's never good on the battlefield, but it, not as it is today. They weren't staying in, you know, nice digs. They didn't have, you know, a forward operating base that actually has an air conditioning unit on it and all of those kind of things. Uh, they were out in the, in the desert sun and they were out in the snows of winter. Believe it or not, it does snow in Israel. Uh, and so they had been out a long time, and so first they're going to be commended. Verse 1, and let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the power of your word, and we ask now that you would just instruct us, encourage us, strengthen us. Would we be able to hear these words as Joshua spoke them to the children of Israel? God, would we hear them, Lord, for us as well? Cause these words to bear fruit in our lives, Lord. Help us to walk in your ways always, Lord. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And then Joshua called the Reubenites, the Gadites, it says there in verse 1 and a half, tribe of Manasseh, and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. You have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. In other words, they have listened to the Lord. There's personal responsibility that you have to God, and there's corporate responsibility that you have to leadership. Uh, I have a certain level of authority over the body of Christ in my position as a pastor. But we all answer to God. Amen? And so you have to do both. Uh, because a church or an army that's chaotic, when there's no leadership, and if that leadership doesn't go from the commander-in-chief, and let's just make God the commander-in-chief. Amen? Just like our president is supposed to be the commander-in-chief of our armed forces, which I'm not sure he does a great job of that, but... The bottom line is he is the commander-in-chief. God is the commander-in-chief, and he passes those orders down, and in this way he passed them down to Moses. Moses then passed them down to the troops. And so they're following through in these things that the Lord has said. And so he says, you've obeyed my voice and all that I've commanded you, and you have not left your brethren these many days up to this day, but have kept the charge of the commandment of the Lord your God. And so... They had been faithful, and when you look throughout, especially the New Testament, the pastoral epistles, that is the number one qualification for service in ministry, is simply to be faithful, to stay the course, to stand in, to to be there. Uh, it, It does no one any good to be what we call the old flash in the pan, that's from the From the days of the flintlock musket, you would take and pull back that flint. You'd put a little bit of powder in the flash pan, and when you pulled the trigger, that flint would strike inside of the bowl, and it would set the powder off, and that would ignite that which was in the barrel. A flash in the pan, something that happened just like that that set everything else off, it does no good in the body of Christ for us to be a flash in the pan. We need to stay the course, and sometimes battles are hard, Church can be difficult at times, life can be difficult at times, and we, we all want to go home, amen? <laughs> Some days I wake up, I'm like, Lord, just take us all home. That would be great today. But these tribes had been faithful, and they were, they were loyal to the leadership that they were under. And because they were loyal, that mission got carried out. A mission doesn't get carried out unless there's loyalty in the troops. The general can have a great battle plan, but the general can't do it himself. And that was true with Joshua. It's true with every church. It's really true with our families, because our families are little microcosms of church, right? And so you have authority structure in the home. And if you've got chaos in the home to where, you know, the husband says one thing, and the wife says something else, and the kids all say something else. Well, the kids always say something else. But you've got, then you've got chaos and you don't have anybody being faithful. And everybody kind of does their own thing, which ends up in the book that's going to follow this, the book of Judges. And everybody did that which was right in their own eyes. And so this is a picture of how we have our devotion to the Lord. My devotion has to be to the Lord. Your devotion has to be to the Lord. It's that Colossians 3 principle found there in verse 23 and 24 Whatever you do, do it heartily unto the Lord, not unto men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive that reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. I I don't serve you. You don't serve me. We all serve the Lord. The church doesn't function by simply somebody calling the shots. The church functions by us following the Lord heartily together and each person taking up their part uh, in the battle. Uh, this church won't function without Jerry sitting at the soundboard. It won't function without, you know, somebody doing PowerPoint back there tonight. Tonight it happens to be uh, as we we sit there and it's Brittany and and sometimes it's Richard and Christopher's making CDs and we have people in children's ministry tonight and Judy's back in the nursery. There's all kinds of things. Coffee did not make itself. Okay, that's all. That's how the body of Christ works. Amen. I can't do all of that. But we need all that happening for church to happen. amen. So this is a picture of us just serving the Lord. And wherever you are in all of that, you serve the Lord heartily, and I serve the Lord heartily. My principal job is to study to make sure that I'm ready to communicate God's word to you, to pray, to counsel, to do those things. But we all have to do our part. And if we do, we get the rest. If we don't, then we all get to struggle. If you don't do your part, I don't do my part, then we're all gonna to struggle together. The second thing he does is he discharges them, and notice what it says in verse 4. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brethren. I love that. Anybody in here, like, dying for some rest? Yeah, I am. I look like, at my life, and it's just like, that's the one thing that I really, really, really want to be able to do. And I'm talking in a practical sense. If you were to ask me, what would you like to do? I'd like to take a nap. I don't know how many of you, I, and see, I'm actually envious of people who can nap because I cannot nap. I am a non-napping person. I'm one of those people that I, if I have the time, I sit down in the chair and I, you know, I kind of get my little snuggly blanket thing and I pull it over there and I start thinking. That's what I do. And then my brain gets going and for, you know, I'm up, I'm doing something. I don't rest very well. And that's because I'm still battling. These guys were done with the battle. It was time to rest. For he has promised them this. And now therefore return and go to your tents and to the land of your possession, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. They fulfilled their mission. They would kept their promise. And now they were free to go home. And this concept of rest is really important here in the book of Joshua, especially these last few chapters. Because it's so much more than just the end of war. It's inheriting that which you've warred for. It's not just the cessation of hostilities. A lot of people, you know if you if you've seen any of the pictures, especially of the Second World War, you know, VJ Day, VE Day, you see all these troops just coming, they're piling on ships and they're going home. It's easy to be thankful for the cessation, cessation of war, but if you come back to a place and it's still warring at home, or, or you don't have work, or there's, there's no peace, and you don't have rest, then the war kind of seems like it was for nothing. God wants us to have rest from that war. And so he sends them back for that specific place and purpose. And it kind of has a picture of both victory and security. It's not just that hostilities aren't going on anymore. It's you've actually won. Have we won in Christ? Yes, we have. If we've actually won in Christ, which we have, then we have security in Christ. We abide in the vine. And so now we're walking in Him. The result of that is that we have peace with God. Amen? And if we have peace with God, then we have rest. We're not out there, oh man, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm walking in that rest. It's exactly what God had promised through, through Moses. And so this is kind of them taking hold of that. It's a beautiful picture. And if you were with us and we studied the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapters 3 and 4 uh, give us this beautiful picture that in Christ we enter into His rest. And that's what we should be endeavoring to do. And notice I didn't say working to do, because you can't really work to rest. Okay, It just doesn't work that way. But you can endeavor. That means to set your mind on his things. That means to have his peace that guards your heart and your mind. It means for you to take up those things and do those causes, which you have been called to do by him, because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Amen? When I take up other things that aren't for me, then my yoke is easy and my burden is not light. It's very heavy and it's burdensome. And so it's really a picture of us just doing what God's called us to do and not worrying about what everybody else is supposed to be doing in the Lord. Can I remind you that most gossip starts by us worrying about what we think other people ought to be doing in the Lord? Something that we think they should do because they're not doing that, then something comes into my life. And we then begin to complain about that. And so this is a picture of total rest. It's like, Everybody's doing what God's called them to do. And because of it, the whole nation ends up at rest, at least for a time. The yoke of his, that Matthew 11 passage, you know, it's just we want that deep rest that we can get in Christ. And it's easy, that that yoke of his discipleship is easy. It's not hard. Verse 5, he goes on now to give us uh, just this beautiful picture. You see, he's going to admonish them. He's also going to encourage them. So he's going to give them a strong exhortation to do what is right. And sometimes people don't like it when you give them a strong exhortation to do what's right because it kind of comes across like you're trying to tell them, well, do this. But if I'm simply steadfast in what I believe God's called us to do, and the easiest way to do that, by the way, is simply repeat what the word says, then I have God's authority behind the words that I speak. And when I do that, I can admonish in my encouragement. I can say, look, do these things. And I can say that strongly. I, I don't have to worry about it ever being wrong. I don't have to worry about somebody, you know, coming up with some other way that's better. God's ways are always the best ways. God's ways are always the highest ways. God's ways, sometimes we don't know them because He's smarter than we are. But when I simply admonish people to do what God's word says, I am actually encouraging them. And that's what he does next. And if you remember there when they were at Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, you had the curses and the blessings. Amen? And remember, at that place, you have to have both. You always must keep in view that the commandments of the Lord contain both things. There's not just a whole bunch of do's, and there's not just a whole bunch of don'ts. There's do's and don'ts. There's blessings and there's curses. These are the things that you should do because you're being obedient, and these are the things that you shouldn't do because you're being disobedient. So you have the blessings and you have the curses. It's a picture of God's character. We have to put off the old and put on the new. You see, it's the same picture in the New Testament. Okay? You have the blessings of God that come in obedience, and you have the curses of God that come in disobedience. If you do what he says, you end up walking in this glorious state of bliss in the Lord, and if you do not what he says, then you end up in all kinds of issues and trouble. Anybody ever gotten in trouble for not doing what God's word says? Wave your hands. Yeah, It's pretty simple to see. And yet some people think that when you tell someone, thus says the Lord, that you're somehow being mean to them. No, I am admonishing you. I am encouraging you in the Lord. God says what he means, means what he says, and that's always the best course of action. Always. Don't underestimate God's ability to be right. Because he's right 100% of the time. Not 87%. Not kind of, sort of, if you agree with him. He's always right. You could do an entire message on verse 5, and we'll just take these seven secrets to success in the Lord uh, just in a, in a brief way tonight, because it's important that we get through the chapter. But take careful heed. That is exactly what the writer of Hebrews says. Take heed. To, to give it substantive, absolute, heart-rendering thought. Take heed. Think about it, and then do it. To do the commandment and the law which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you. So there's the first thing. Do the law. Do the commandments. Whatever God says, do it. Second thing, to love the Lord your God. There's a lot of people that don't love the Lord. Matter of fact, they only do the commandments because they're afraid of God. I was one of those people for a while in my walk with the Lord. I was afraid God was going to barbecue me. I went to a Southern Baptist church. I was sure that if you swam in the same pool as a girl, that there was, there was literally going to be hell to pay, that God would strike you dead by the time you got home. I was afraid of God. I didn't do the commandments of the Lord because I loved the Lord. I was just simply afraid of God. Now, there's a healthy fear of God we must all have, but it shouldn't be the overriding factor in your life. It should be reverence. Not just fear. Love the Lord, your God. To walk in all of His ways. It's an interesting little play on words there in the original Hebrew. It means to do absolutely everything He says. It doesn't just mean to, you know, kind of walk in a certain way, you know, physically, or to maybe, you know, act a certain way so people think you're right with God. It literally means to do absolutely everything that God ever said. Walk in all of his ways. To keep his commandments. That's actually a repeat. Notice in the middle of this is the beginning. Keep his commandments. Hold fast to him. That is a picture of a small child gripped under the leg of, of a parent and holding fast. The world is raging. Things are going on. If you've ever had this experience... You know exactly what I'm saying. When your kids come running up and they've had some kind of issue and they grab you by the leg and they hold on, and they they have buried their fingernails in your leg and they will not—they're going to step on your feet. They're just going to ride on your leg the rest of the day, holding fast to God. Wherever God goes, you go. Hold fast. You don't want to be any place that God isn't, and you don't want to be any place that He's not. Or you don't want—you want to be where He is. And to serve him with all of your heart. Notice that it says to get busy, to be a doer of the word, and to do it with your heart, not just your head. It's making that picture, look, we we can do lip service to God. There's a lot of people that do lip service to God. They'll say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And nothing is done with their heart. There's no change in their heart. There's not even a change in their mind. There's barely a change in their action. This is a picture of somebody who's completely sold out to the work of the Lord. And that's where we need to be. And with all your soul, and so now it switches over to the deep spiritual longing that each of us should have to be well-pleasing to God. not just with your head, but with your soul, that these things are done. And so he admonished him. He says, look, guys, just go live for the Lord. And you could almost encapsulate this and exactly what the Shema says. Amen? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That's what the Jews say in the morning when a Jewish family wakes up. The father is supposed to pronounce that that blessing. It says, Hear, o Israel, the Lord your God is one. And then it goes on to say that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and all of your strength. And these things which I should command you, you shall write them on your on your heart and on the doorpost of your house. And so if you've ever seen, if you have any friends who are Jewish, they may have a mezuzah on their door. It's on the same side as the latch or the doorknob. It's a little round cylinder. It's usually about yay tall. It's put right on the doorpost. The word mezuzah actually means doorpost, and in that is the Shema. And so as you go out the door, you write this blessing on the doorpost of your house, and you rub that little... Mezuzah, because you're rubbing the word of God on your hands as you go out. And when you come back, guess what you do? You rub the mezuzah again, and you go back in your house, and then you pronounce the blessing again. And and so what was going on here is these guys were just dedicating themselves to the Lord. They, they, were, they were putting a blessing on them, and that's what happens next. Notice what it says as we move on to verse 6. You see, they're, they're giving these... Amazing principles here. And it says there in verse 6, And so Joshua blessed them and sent them away, and they went to their own tents. And now the half-tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession to Bashan. The other half, Joshua gave the possession among their brethren on the east side of the Jordan, westward. And indeed, when Joshua sent them away to their tents, he blessed them. And he spoke to them, saying, Return with much riches to your tent, with very much livestock, with silver, with gold, bronze, iron, with very much clothing, and divide the spoil of your enemies with your brethren. He, he's saying, look, guys, be blessed. I don't know about you, but I like being blessed. I really like being blessed, in fact. And, and so when I think about being blessed, uh, it, it, to me, I look at this passage, and I'm going like, yeah, give me more. A Christian who doesn't want the blessings of God is kind of lame, actually. You know, it's like, why would you not want God's blessings? But God's blessings come with obedience. And so Joshua was able to bless them because they had been obedient. They were not all like Achan. They didn't go in and take things that didn't belong to them. Most of them did exactly what God asked them to do. And so these people now had that right to go home and be blessed. You ever notice when you're not walking with the Lord, it seems like everything in your life is a curse as a Christian? Even good things don't turn out well. You're kind of wandering around, ah, man, I just don't know. We have so many people that wander into the church and they will make a public profession that they know the Lord. They'll say, yeah, I'm a Christian. And then you, you ask them what's going on in their life. Well, you know, I'm living with my girlfriend, I'm living with my boyfriend. You know, I don't have a job. I'm not looking for a job. Well, yeah, I'm kind of doing a bunch of math. And and again, I'm not picking on anyone here, but I'm simply pointing out they are professing that they know Jesus, but they are actually telling me that they are not walking with the Lord. And they are miserable. They absolutely hate life. They have no blessings in their life. They're wondering where their next meal is going to come from because they're being disobedient. And God's allowing them to have the fruit of disobedience, which is not blessings. It's curses. It's a bummer. You you can't get the blessings of God without being obedient. There, there is no path that goes there. You might occasionally have a good thing, but it never lasts. And you talk to people who are in that position. That's exactly what they tell. Well, you know, I had this job, or I had this car, or I was once married. Or I did have children, and, and, and because of the disobedience and because of the sin, those things are gone. And again, this is not to, to put a finger on anybody. It's to say, if you don't want that in your life, then you have to be obedient as a child of God. You must. You have to walk in His ways. Otherwise, you set yourself up for failure. And now as we move on to verse 9, you're going to see some some honest concerns expressed here. There there are actually, these two and a half tribes, remember they're in modern day Jordan, what we call Transjordan. If you look at the original Balfour Declaration, it included what was called Transjordan. When Israel was made a nation, there was a large parcel of property, which was very much the, the actual right piece of property that would have been the biblical land of Canaan. It was supposed to be offered to the Jewish people as their homeland. It was shrunk down to about what we see today in modern-day Israel. But the the two and a half tribes, Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe Manasseh, are all over in modern-day Jordan. That's not the promised land. That's outside of the promised land. So they were actually leaving the land of blessing and going to a land that was not blessed of God. They made that choice themselves. They actually had land with their other tribes on the other side, if they wanted it. But they didn't want it. They wanted to go live with the world. It's a huge picture here for the body of Christ. Because Christians who want to live with the world always are outside of the blessings of God. And so the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, returned and departed from the children of Israel at Shiloh, which is the land of Canaan, to go to the country of Gilead, to the land of their possession, which they had obtained according to the word by the Lord, by the hand of Moses. And then they came to the region of Jordan, which is the land of Canaan, And the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh built an altar there by the Jordan, a great and impressive altar. And so we see these men, these families, they start to pass the landmarks. Can, Can you see this picture? They're going by all the landmarks of the victorious battles in the Promised Land. And they're passing them one by one to go back where they're not supposed to actually live. Now, they can go there because they were sent ahead of the children of Israel to live there, really to be an expeditionary force, but they really should have stayed on the other side of the Jordan. And they're passing the monuments, they're passing by Gilgal, they're passing by the victory at Jericho, they're passing by all these places where God had done this amazing work, and each time they go past it, they're like, well, you know, It's going to be okay over there. It's kind of a picture of compromise in our lives. It might be okay, but you want to be where it's the very best that God has for you. You don't want to pass up what's best for what's okay. And no matter how big of an altar you build in the land of okay, it will never be as good as your heart being in the land that God has promised to you. When you read Numbers 32, you discover that there's no record that Moses ever consulted the Lord about this whole two and a half tribe thing. They just kind of did it. Moses said, "Okay, yeah, fine, go." But you don't you don't see him really talking to the Lord about this. It was kind of man's idea. You guys go as an expedition, you be over there on that side. Everybody else will join you, and we'll come back across the Jordan at some point in time. And of course, it was supposed to happen 40 years earlier when they came to Kadesh Barnea. But they didn't do that. And so they've been separated all this time. They had gotten, in this picture of us, how we can get comfortable in the world. Comfortable with habits. Comfortable with stuff that we shouldn't have in our homes. Comfortable with ways of life that we shouldn't be living as a child of God. Comfortable with foreign gods. Comfortable with foreign spouses, and I don't mean foreign as in a different race, creed, color, or anything, but I mean as in not saved. Someone who doesn't know the Lord. Someone who doesn't want to walk with the Lord. You want to you talk to a miserable person? Talk to a couple where one of the two is saved and one of the two is not. You want to talk to two miserable people. They're both miserable. They're miserable for different reasons, but they're miserable. Why? Because they're not walking in the promises of God, they can't. It's actually an impossibility, because you have one person who's guided by the Spirit, and one person who's not guided by the Spirit, and so it's this picture, if you will, of people walking by by sight and not by faith, making a decision based on, you know, what they they probably had homes over there. It was flesh. It was carnal. We have to be careful to want what God wants for us. And sometimes he stirs up the apple cart. Amen? I you know, I don't know how many of you have had that experience, but Connie and I have had all kinds of experiences where God has done things that we actually are, ah, ah, no, 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 we're not doing that. And he's saying, yes, 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 you are doing that. We're saying, no, 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 we don't want to do that. We're saying, well, if you want my blessing, you need to do what I tell you to do. No. And you kind of argue with him a little bit. And then you live long enough to figure out that he was absolutely 100% correct. And he knew what he was doing. You didn't see it at the time. But in being obedient, you got his blessings. You see, the wilderness wanderings actually represent the experience of us as believers who don't enter in by faith. we got to have everything by sight. We don't want to trust the Lord. we got to have all of our ducks in a row according to what we can manufacture. And God's saying, look, trust me. So these guys kind of became what I, I call borderline believers. You know, they, they weren't the type of believers that you would look at, man, I want to model that life. They kind of lived on the edge, if you will. And I think it's important for us as, as the body of Christ to kind of look at these things. You know, they'd caused this problem. How'd they solve it? <laughs> look what they did they thought if they built a really big, impressive altar that everybody could see for miles, a gigantic altar. It was like the king-size altar. It was a monumental altar to the Lord. If you build a big enough altar, then all of a sudden that's going to fix everything. And, and I, you know, I've been around a long time. I've seen some of the lamest bumper stickers and religious jewelry and you know, and I'm not against most of that stuff, quite frankly. If you got a grade, I don't care. But you may have noticed that I have a like a half-eaten dove on the back of the Durango. The rest of our cars, we, it's just like we're not putting stuff on there anymore because every once in a while, Pastor Jeff doesn't drive like he should. <laughs> and so, you know, somebody looks, oh, it's one of those Christians. You know, it's better off to not build a big altar. It's better off, I. I true story. I'm seventeen years old, I'm going to buy some pot, okay? And on the back of my car, I have every Christian sticker known to man on the back of my car. It's like in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. I found it. They're all on there. You know, I I mean there's all these things on there. And I pull up to this drug dealer's shady house thing, and I wasn't like some big gigantic drug fiend, but you know, this is just what you did in the sixties and seventies and so you'd you'd you know, you'd pull up and you're like those bumper stickers on the back of my car. You know what I got at church the very next Sunday? Pastor Jeff, I saw you on our street. You know, except at that time, it was just, Jeff, we saw you on the street. What were you doing? You know, that's a drug house. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to just build a big old monument. You don't want to slap a bunch of stickers on your car. You want the Lord to have your heart. All of you. Not just a, a bunch of stuff that kind of indicates you, you you might have some inclination towards the Lord. Kind of, I were laughing. Uh, you know, and every Baptist church is like this. You have to go Christmas caroling. And it was the one time of year where I actually learned to hate Christmas carols. Because you're standing out in the street in front of a bunch of people that you do not know, and you can't sing, and there's, you're singing Christmas carols. And, you know, you see this mob of people coming down the street, and you're just like, this is so totally wrong. Because there wasn't one person in that group that wanted to be out there singing those Christmas carols. There was no heart in it at all. It was like, holy night." You know, you're just like completely not heartfelt. Don't just build an altar. Give the Lord the altar of your heart. The next thing that we see here is there's finally some submission. Now the children of Israel heard someone say, Behold, the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, built an altar on the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region of the Jordan, and the children of Israel, on the children of Israel's side, And when the children of Israel heard it, the whole congregation of the children of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to go to war against them. It's pretty bad when church becomes a war. That's a pretty clear indication that there's not a lot of the work of the Spirit going on when the church is at war with the church. Bad deal. And then the children of Israel sent Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to the children of Reuben, to the children of Gad, to the half-tribe of Manasseh, to the land of Gilead. And with him ten rulers, one ruler each from the chief house of every tribe of Israel. And each one was the head of the house of his father among the land divisions. And, and, and so word travels very quickly that, that they had done this thing. And it just had caused all kinds of chaos. And they didn't know what was on the hearts of anybody. They just assumed, hey, they've done this thing that nobody's supposed to do. Because they were told, don't chisel stones, Deuteronomy reminds us of that don't make a big old altar you need to use natural stones they had done exactly the opposite so this was an unauthorized altar I mean, horror of horrors and so now everybody's in the flesh it's not a good thing when the church gets in the flesh it's a good thing when the church is in the spirit and so these tribal leaders go out to investigate all these things And God had actually instructed them, destroy all the altars of the heathen nations in Canaan and don't build altars of your own. So they were against the Lord. And so now a group of people not hearing from God, going someplace where God wasn't going to send them, doing something they weren't supposed to do, has now caused the whole nation of Israel to be messed up. Never underestimate the power of one person's bad deeds, a small group of people's bad deeds, to mess up a really good thing. You can seriously mess up a church by getting engaged in something that God didn't tell you to do. It's not a good thing. And so they realize that they they then appeal in verse 15, notice what it says there. Basically saying, look, don't backslide. And they came to the children of Reuben, the children of Yad, to the half-tribe Manasseh, to the land of Gilead. And he spoke with them, saying, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What treachery is this that you have committed against the God of Israel to turn away this day from following the Lord, that you've built for yourselves an altar, that you might rebel this day against the Lord? You've done exactly what God asked you not to do. And so now the churches have to confront this problem. Children of Israel confronting this problem. This is the iniquity of Peor. It's not enough for us, from which we are not cleansed to this day. They had remembered Achan, they had remembered Peor. They, all these things bear fruit over long periods of time. You know, sometimes when, when the worst thing that can happen to the to the body of Christ isn't that there's problems, it's that the problems are handled in an ungodly way. And then it becomes a real problem because God ends up getting blamed for it. And then the world rejoices. Or, look, well, that's how Christians act. And, you know, why do we want to be one of those guys? And although there was a plague in the congregation of the Lord, that you must turn away this day from following the Lord. And it shall be that if you rebel today against the Lord, that tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. They're saying, look, we don't want you to bring down condemnation on all of us because you guys are walking in the flesh. Nevertheless, if the land of your possession is unclean, cross over to the land of the possession of the Lord, where the Lord's tabernacle is, where it stands and take possession among us, but don't rebel against the Lord. Say, come on back on the right side of the river. They're saying, look, you're welcome over here with the rest of us. Don't stay over there where you're not. If it means you've got to build an altar over there that's not authorized by the Lord, then come back over here with us. He's saying, "Look, here's here's where the Lord is. Come back where the Lord is." Sometimes when you when you talk to Christians who are engaged in things they shouldn't be engaged in, it makes them really, really, really upset. They get super angry with you. How dare you get? You know, you're getting involved in my life. Are you trying to play holy? No, I'm just telling you what God's Word says. God's word says don't do these things and you're doing these things you're going to you're going to bring condemnation on yourself and you're going to shame the name of the Lord. Come back over here. Do not rebel against the Lord nor rebel against us by building yourselves an altar besides the altar of the Lord. Our God there was one altar. There was one tabernacle. It was at Shiloh. It was the only one. So this was not of God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, commit trespass on the accursed thing? And the wrath fell on the congregation of Israel. Hey, look, we all paid a price. We all paid a price because of Achan's sin. And that man did not perish alone in his iniquity. Remember, others perished with him. And so the picture is this. This act of treachery can affect the whole church. And you've seen it. You've seen those giant fiascos that take down entire ministries because of one person's sin. We don't even need to name them. You all can probably name a dozen of them for me where you've seen some high profile leader who's led some group of people astray to go do something that's not of the Lord and God's name is shamed amongst the Gentiles and the church falls apart. First Samuel chapter 15 actually says that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness as iniquity from idolatry. Well, when you won't listen to wise counsel from the Lord, you know, putting the whole bunch of us in jeopardy. I bumped into an awful lot of people. This town is small, folks. Everybody knows everybody, and they all know everybody's business. They know your business, they know my business, they know our business, they know the business's businesses, and business of the business of the other businesses. Even if it's nobody's business they know the business. <laughs> I've heard this one, yeah, I saw so-and-so, and they had like three twelve 12-packs in their card at Jensen's. I'm like, oh, Lord, the people you gave me. <laughs> yeah. And then people are pretending like, oh, it wasn't me. It was the woman you gave me. She invited a bunch of people over. Can I remind you that the sin of Peor, 24,000 people died for one guy's sin. Achan was the same story. children of Israel suffered. And so they began to argue. Notice the argument here. And, and I want you to notice something here. The Lord knows your heart. He's not put off by our wise little things that we make up, you know, our crafty little stories, our lies, our deception. Then the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, it says in verse 21, the half-tribe of Manasseh answered and said to the heads of the division of Israel, The Lord God of gods. Now listen to this. This is is actually quite humorous. This is like, I swear to God. I swear on God's God and a stack of God's Bibles and double God dare you. This is what they're doing. The Lord God of gods. The Lord, God of gods, he knows, and let not itself know in rebellion, nor the treachery against the Lord, and do not save us this day. They're like, it wasn't us, God knows. If we've built ourselves an altar to turn from following the Lord, or to offer a burnt offering, or grain offerings, or to offer a peace offering, actually what they were being was lazy. They didn't want to go from their homes to Shiloh. That was the actual issue. We'll just build an altar over here. It's short. It's kind of like the folks that habitually come late to service. Not quite as bad, but similar. It's just like, I can't get there. on. I can't leave the house ten minutes earlier. Get there at the last song, maybe. (laughs) Yes, I'm kind of picking on some folks here. It's like, get up earlier, all right, already. Give God your best. Be there on time. People have invested their time, invested their talent, invested their treasure to bring you near to the Lord. Don't just build your own. You know how many people I have? Well, you know, I was listening to Chuck on the way in. (laughs) The Lord knows my heart. It's kind of the same deal. Or to offer a peace offering to it. Let the Lord Himself inquire, require an account. You know, they're just calling on the Lord. But if in fact we've done it in fear for a reason, saying what time to come to your descendants, may we speak to your de- our descendants. What have you to do with the Lord God of Israel? They're just going on and on about the Lord and who He is. For the Lord has made the Jordan a border between you and us, and the children of Reuben and the children of Gad. You have no part in the Lord, and so your descendants will make our descendants cease from fearing the Lord. You you get the picture? And they just go on and on. And therefore, we said, now let us prepare and build ourselves an altar, because we don't want to mess with the Lord. You know, the Lord knows our hearts. But that it may be a witness between you and us and our generations after us that we may perform the service of the Lord before him for our burnt offerings, our sacrifices, with our peace offerings, that your descendants may not say to the descendants of ours in time to come, you have no part in the Lord. And therefore we said that it will be that when we say this to our generations to come, or we may say that there is a replica of the altar of the Lord which our fathers made, though not for burnt offerings or not for sacrifices. It's not the real one. I just want you to know that. want to be really clear here. But we worship at the not real one. We're not going to go to the real one. We're going to worship right here. For sacrifices, but it is a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day. Or to build an altar for burnt offerings or for grain or offerings or sacrifices or beside the altar of the Lord, which our God, which is before His tabernacle. What they're basically saying is, We did the whole thing for the Lord, even though it's sin. We did the whole thing in the name of Jesus, even though it's absolutely sin. We put bumper stickers all over this puppy, even though it's sin. An awful lot of questionable things have been done in the name of the Lord. I've had people tell me that they're living with their significant other because the Lord told them to. I've had people, well, you know, uh, we're, we're not actually going to get married because the Lord told us we would lose our social security. No, the Lord didn't tell you that. All kinds of questionable things have been done, and then tack on to the end of it, the Lord said so. And just because you follow something with the Lord said so, doesn't mean the Lord said so. The Lord says so when the Lord says so. He doesn't say so because you said he said it. He says it because he said it. You get the picture? They're basically trying to justify all that they've done by using the name of the Lord some 30 times in this one passage of Scripture. Well, if we just mention God enough, it'll be okay. It's like Christians who, you know, they punch somebody in the face. Praise God, brother. (laughs) Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Glad I didn't break your nose. It's only bleeding. We say, well, the Lord knows my heart. I didn't mean to punch in the face. I was just, you know, pretending I was in a Bruce Lee movie, and I just kind of wanted to miss. And before you know it, the whole nation starts misinterpreting everything. Paul gives us this picture. He just reminds us, look, guys, whatever we do, we got to do it heartily unto the Lord. It needs to be what God said to do. You see, what they were doing was basically saying that they're, You know, hey, we don't want our kids messed up. We want everything to be okay. So look, let's do it this way, which wasn't God's way. So by default, they were messing up their kids. By default, they were being hypocrites. By default, there was worldly compromise. By default, they were telling their kids one thing and doing something else. It never works out well. And it produces a generation of kids who don't want anything to do with the Lord. And if they do have anything to do with the Lord, it's messed up because they don't know what the Lord wants anymore. You have to wholly follow the Lord. Worldly compromise is a really bad thing that bears horrible fruit. Verse 30, they finally make an agreement. Now in Phineas the priests, the rulers of the congregation, the heads of the division of Israel who were with him, heard the words the children of Reuben, children of Gad, and the children of Manasseh spoke. It pleased them. Why? Because compromise, in a negative sense, very often pleases everybody. We'll just all be in sin. You make up your nice little excuse, we'll listen to your excuse, and pretty pretty soon nobody's walking with the Lord. Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, had said to the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, the children of Naphtali, This day we perceive that the Lord is among us, because you have not committed this treachery against the Lord. Now you've delivered the children of Israel out of the hand of the Lord. That's not true. They went right back to their practices. It appeared that way. That's what they said they were going to do, but it isn't what they did. Phinehas, the son of Eliezer, the priest, the rulers returned from the children of Reuben, the children of Gad, and the land of Gilead, to the land of Canaan, to the children of Israel, and brought back word to them. And so the thing pleased the children of Israel, and the children of Israel blessed God, and they spoke no more against going out against them in battle to destroy the land where the children of Reuben and the children of Gad dwelt. The children of Reuben the children of Gad called the altar a witness, for this is a witness between us and the Lord. Now, it's an interesting thing here. Because what they actually did was returned right back to their heathen lands. Believing that they were going to keep what they said. And there's really one picture that I want to give here. Because church history is absolutely replete with this particular problem. Phineas was pleased. The delegation was pleased. The children of Israel were pleased. People are fairly easy to please because the moment, okay, well, there's not going to be a war. Everybody's really happy. But the question we have to ask is God pleased? That's the question we have to ask. It's not as Jeff pleased. It's not, are you pleased? It's as God pleased. And in this case, the Lord wasn't really pleased. You see, they, they didn't reach forth in anything other than unity. And unity without truth is a lie. Being simply loving without truth is a lie. Ceasing hostilities without truth is a lie. You've got to have truth. We are to speak the truth in love, Ephesians 4.15 says. Amen? We speak the truth in love. These guys were not speaking the truth. This was not a truthful agreement. This was a lie about which they were all happy. Well, great, we're not going to have to go to war. We're not going to actually have to stand for anything. We're going to let them keep their altar because they meant well and we're going to go back on our side, because that's the land that God gave us. Unity without truth is a lie. Love without truth is a lie. You you can't, as Matthew Henry wisely said, peace is such a precious jewel that I will give anything for it except truth. You have to keep truth in in view. They didn't do that. They just said, ah, it's okay. You keep, you know, keep token, dude. You know, that's okay. I I know you're only drunk a couple days a week. It's all right. Go ahead and do that. Just make sure you show up the Wednesday night. It's all right, stay with your girlfriend. I mean, after all, God sees you together in heaven. And yes, all of these things have been said to my face. You get the picture? That's not truth. It sounds nice. Well, you know, they mean to be in a committed relationship. So leave them alone. You have to tell them the truth. Look, God doesn't honor that relationship. It's a recipe for danger. It can harm you. It puts you at odds with God. You need to get out of that relationship. You see, that's going to leave us fighting to some degree. Hopefully it will be said in love, be received in love. But the point is, you can't yank truth out of it you got to speak the truth. If you speak the truth, God's pleased. If you simply make an agreement and nobody's fighting, God may actually not be okay with that. God would rather have you speak. To... Don't know what that was. Maybe it was something I wasn't supposed to say. This was a divine editing. I don't know. See, that or Satan didn't want it said. (laughs) God would rather have you speak the truth in love and have a little bit of conflict going between you and your brother or sister in Christ. Notice I said a little bit of conflict. than for you to not tell them the truth and there to be peace. Tell them the truth. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd help us to respond to your things and your holiness. Uh, that you'd give us the courage to confront people in love, that you'd cause us to respond uh, with an attempt, Lord, to reconcile all things to you and to your word. Pray that you would, Lord, just help us to be ambassadors of you, Lord, wherever we go. Lord, help us to not compromise. Lord, help us to not be comfortable in the world, Lord. We're, We're to be in it, but not of it. And so, God, we pray that our altars would be built where they should that our lives would be lived in a way that's pleasing to you we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Amen